Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning. It's good to be here. It's been, I was thinking about it, it's been four years since, not the last time I just spoke, but unfortunately, Penny and I haven't been able to attend real often. Penny's, uh, her immune system is so frail, so we watch regularly on, the, uh, on TV, but we don't get to be here very often. So it's a, a real thrill to be here today, and hopefully with the new chemotherapy that Penny has begun a week or so ago, uh, we'll be able to get back here and get her in remission. That's our hope, and we appreciate all your prayers. Let's go ahead and pray and just ask the Lord to be with us and see what he, what he has. Father, I thank you so much for this time. Lord, I just ask that you would come and, and uh, give me your mind and give me your thoughts that I could speak uh, consistent with your intentions for today. Lord, give me a, an ability to, to be captured by you. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us, Lord, that we would leave today different than when we arrived simply because you're here. So come, <clears throat> come, Lord, and have your way in Jesus' name. Well, Michael said I can really take this and go with it however I wish. So if you could pull out your checkbooks and your wallets, we're going to take a no. No. I got plenty last night, though. No need for them. So I'm having the privilege of, of starting the introduction to the gospel of holiness. The gospel of holiness will be taught over the next, I don't know, six or seven weeks by uh, Michael and Andrew and Heather. And, uh, but I, I get to sort of give a, a launch to that. I'm going to be just doing an overview of what it is. And then uh, over these next number of weeks, uh, Michael, uh, Heather, and, and Andrew will put meat on, on the bones. And essentially, what the gospel of holiness is, is just a practical theology of sanctification. But if we call it, a, come and hear a practical theology of sanctification, no one would come. But it, it really encapsulates what we're about. And let me explain what, what that means. By practical, I just simply mean what we'll be talking about over these next number of weeks is, is practical. It's applicable to our everyday life. It's something that we could put into practice, something that we can apply to our lives. It's not just theory, it's not just principles, but it's something that should make a difference in how we live our lives, how we understand our relationship with Christ. And in that sense, it's, it's a practical theology. It's about Jesus. It's not a counseling technique. It's not a, a way to pursue inner healing. It's a theology of Wholeness. It's a theology that speaks to this process of sanctification. And sanctification is just the biblical word that refers to the process of being changed into the likeness of Christ. The process that is underway in our lives where Christ forms us like a, a potter taking some clay and, and pressing in and pushing and spreading out and and designing that, that clay into something that his, the potter's intention is to create. 
And God has taken hold of our lives and like clay in the the potter's hands, he is in this process for our entire life of conforming us, transforming us into the image of Christ. And usually it takes, you know, five, six years to, no, it takes the rest of our lives and then we're still far from, from looking like Jesus. But that's what he's up to. So the gospel of holiness is just a practical theology of this process of sanctification that Jesus has, has begun. And I, let, me, let me unpack that today and, and just sort of set a foundation, a groundwork, so that over these next weeks, as they get into actually looking at eight different verses, a verse or two each week, as they, unpack, as they look into those verses, you'll understand why and, and how this fits in to the overall purposes of God here on earth. It's important, really important, that we as Christians understand what God is doing here on earth. I had a roommate once who would enter into uh, whatever room he, he came into and if there were other people there, he'd say, so what on earth is going on here? It's a good question to ask. We need to understand what on earth God is doing. What is his plan? What is his intention? And let me just use as a springboard the, the last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven at the end of his earthly ministry after the resurrection. These were the important things that he wanted his disciples to keep in mind. It was an overall picture of what on earth he was doing, had been doing the prior three years in his earthly ministry, and what God is doing here on earth as we press into eternity. And in, in uh, Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 19, he gives this, essentially what it is, is the job description of the church and a perspective so we understand how it fits in to his overall purposes. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey the commands that I've given to you. And be sure of this, that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he says to the, to the disciples, to his apostles, and to those others who are listening, what I want you to be doing is making disciples. He didn't say, I want you to go and teach this class. I don't want you to go and pass on this, this information. But he says, I want you to make disciples, gather other individuals and teach them both through your words and through your actions, through your life. I want you to pass on to them what you saw me doing. I want you to form in these individuals and in these other disciples the same thing that I have been forming into you as my followers. So that just as my desire for the 12 was to become like Jesus, now the 12 goes, go and find and make more disciples. And for generation after generation after generation, now some 2,000 years later, we are the continuation of that job description. We are those who in our generation in our time, become disciples who are called 
to make other disciples. And basically, a disciple needs to understand, we need to understand two things. The first is we need to understand a lot of things, but I'm going to talk about two initially. The two things that we need to understand is that as disciples, that we have been, uh, received an invitation into a relationship with Jesus. Again, being a disciple of Christ doesn't have to do with just learning information, going to seminary, going to Bible school, going to Bible studies. All of that is really good so that we can understand the end is having a relationship with Christ, having a relationship with Jesus, knowing him just as he knows us. And he tells the disciples, you go and make more disciples and let them understand and know that they've been invited into this connection. And folks, that is the core of Christianity. That's at the center of Christianity. That we are those who Jesus saw, who Jesus created, who Jesus sought after so that we can know him. It just, just to think about that, you know, when I was born and grew up in New York, right outside New York City, and I, was a, I grew up in a Jewish home, but I was an agnostic, actually I was an atheist when Jesus grabbed hold of me. And just the thought, as I think about it at times, that Jesus saw this, this arrogant, young, lost Jewish kid outside of New York City and said, there he is. I need to come and I need to take hold of his life. And there's not a person sitting here that that truth is not valid for. Every one of you, regardless of where you're at, regardless of whether you've asked Jesus to come and take hold of your life or you're just looking into it, there's, a, there's an invitation that was started by Jesus we didn't find him somehow because we were so spiritual and so motivated to be good people. He found us. He saw you. He saw you even when, before you were born. He saw you in your mother's womb. He saw you throughout your life with all the ups and downs. And he said, there's one of mine. And he has set up circumstances and set up the work of his Holy Spirit Say, come, let's, let's live together, inviting you to know him and to love him and to walk with him. So we are invited into relationship with Christ. And, and that, as I said, that's the miracle of Christianity. Not just that we have our sins forgiven, not just that we are called to be, to be woven together with other followers, but the core of Christianity is Jesus knows us and invited us to know him. It's the center of all of God's kind intentions. It's the centerpiece that he knows us and that we can come to know him. In 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes Actually, he's quoting a verse in, that you can find in the Old Testament in, frequent, in a number of places. And then he quotes it in the New Testament, Apostle Paul, talking of God's heart. He says, here's what God is thinking. 
I will live in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people and I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's the heartbeat of God. That's his passion to have a people, to live in them and among them. And over and over, we see that theme in the, in the scriptures. Over and over, we see God wanting to draw near. So not only does he invite us into a relationship with him, but then he says, and I want you to be my disciple. Now, th- this isn't a word used frequently in our culture, but it was a very common word in the first century because you see each rabbi in Israel had his own disciples. He had his own school, had his own gathering of, of young individuals, not always young, but individuals who were following that, that rabbi and being taught. And essentially that rabbi would mentor them to look like him, to act like him, to think like him. So you would have various schools of Uh, of various rabbis. And when Jesus called the 12, that was exactly what they understood he was doing. Here, this this rabbi, who is a little strange to begin with, comes and says, Peter and John and and uh, Matthew and so on, come and, and follow me. And they understood him to say, I want you to be part of my school of disciples. I want you to to watch how I live and watch how I I talk to people. And I want you to become like me. So they were flabbergasted, these fishermen and tax gatherers and just just not the, the high members of the culture. They were amazed that Jesus wanted us, they thought, to, to be in his school of disciples. And each one of us, God saw you and knew you and understood what you were thinking and feeling and and experiencing. And he's been pursuing you relentlessly to come and know that he's invited you into relationship and to be a learner. That's what a disciple is, someone who learns, someone who imitates. And that's what's happening in our lives. That's God's intention. That's his his kind intention, that we become molded and shaped and become more and more like Jesus, that process of of sanctification. And as I said, the gospel of wholeness is the good news that God is producing his kind intentions in those of us who respond and say, "Here, here I am, if you are inviting me into relationship, I'm surrendering my life to you. And like I said, it's a process of ups and downs continually. We fall down, we get back up. But each time, Jesus says, here I am, let me pick you up. Let's continue walking together. Not putting us into tension, causing us to go back to, the, to start, he just takes us and says, let's, let's just continue this process. And what causes the process to take place is Jesus himself, that he's with us, that he knows us, and he's put a spirit within us. 
But a lot of times we, we lose sight of this great purpose of being invited into relationship and, and being a disciple and becoming like him. And many Christians, this may not apply to all of you, but most of us, we, we come to think or act as if the purpose that God has for our life is, is sin management. That's what he wants us to be about. We need just to manage the sin in our lives, our brokenness, not only the things that we do because of our own brokenness, but to, to help us manage the, the hurts and the pain and the trauma that we may have experienced, that we think, okay, while I'm waiting for Jesus to come back or for me to go and be with him, I just need to begin to, to sin less, do good more, and just wait for that time when I can can move on into eternity, as if we're on some holding pattern. You know, and oh, I go to church, and I worship, and I'll read the Bible, and, and all these good things, as if those are the end. No, the end, the, the end is growing to know him better and better. And as we walk with him, to be conformed and shaped, so you look more and more like Jesus. Behaviorally, our words in our actions. But we think it's, it's somehow like an like a old mattress with springs popping out that we're supposed to just get hold of all those, the, the signs of our brokenness and push them back down. But the goal of the Christian life is in sin management. And unfortunately, maybe that's how you grew up. Maybe you grew up in a home where that was the emphasis. Just behave yourself. Do what's right. Stop acting like that. And why don't you act like this? So we learn that, okay, I just need to be a better person. And we think that we'll just bring that, that intention into our Christian life. But that's not what God is doing. We could describe what God is wanting to do with three words. And the first, as I have been pointing out, the first intention that he has as he grabbed hold of our lives and invites us into to relationship, is just that intimacy. Not just knowing facts about Jesus, but learning to be connected to him, learning to walk with him. You know, sometimes I don't think I'm alone in this. I think back to how wonderful it would be if, if I was alive in the first century. Just the thought of being able to walk down some dusty road and just sort of you know, come up next to Jesus and saying, but Jesus, what about this? And why did you say that? And what's going on with this attitude that I have? And, and just asking one question after another. Well, what God has called us to is something very similar, only he's not with us right now in physical form. But that's why he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans when he ascended into heaven. He's not leaving us alone until he comes back, but he's given us the Holy Spirit who, as we grow in this process, can speak, doesn't, he doesn't grow in his ability to speak, but we grow in our ability to hear and to sense what he's saying and those, those gentle nudges. He's called us into intimacy with Christ, knowing him, just not about him. I remember quite a number of years ago, probably about 
probably about 30, 40 years ago now. I had a friend who lived in Chicago, and he was a school teacher in a private school. And I went, and he invited me to come and observe his class for a day because he had nothing better to do with me, and I had nothing better to do. So I, I went, and he said, you know, one of my students is Muhammad Ali's son. I thought, well, that's interesting because I was a, a great fan of Muhammad Ali. So I went to school, and, and during recess, he introduced me to Ali's son, who was, he's only about seven years old. And I remember sitting there talking to his son, saying, you know, I, I, I was a great fan of your dad's. And I, I remember the, the first time he, he became, a, a, when he got the champion uh, belt, I remember he was fighting Sonny Liston, and he, he was the underdog, and he, he knocked Sonny Liston out. And then a year or so later, he fought Sonny Liston a second time and, and won that, uh, that match. And I talked to him about the, you know, the thriller in Manila and the rumble in the jungle and fighting Foreman and Frazier. And this, all these sons looking at me and just asking questions, and I felt pretty hot. I mean, I knew more about his father than he did. And then all of a sudden he turned to me and said, boy, I can't wait to get home tonight. And when dad and I take a walk, I'm going to ask him about all this. And then suddenly I realized I knew about his dad, but he had that relationship, that intimacy with his dad. And that's what I'm talking about. The normal Christian life isn't just managing our sin until Christ returns. The normal Christian life is intimacy with Jesus, knowing him and allowing him to know us, to learn what, what Jesus meant and what Paul meant when, he, when we were exhorted to, to fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author and the perfecter of our lives. Take your eyes off the circumstances all around you and let your eyes behold Jesus. Because not only did he give us life, but he perfects that life that he's called us to. So we're called to intimacy with Christ. We're called to dependency upon Christ. And understand that it's the dependency flows out of the intimacy as we walk with him, as we know him, as we allow him to know us. It's easy then to move towards depending on him, leaning on him, not jumping off the gurney every time he wants to do a little surgery or, or fix a, bro, a, a little break in our lives. But we know his kind intentions because it, we've been walking with him. We've been listening to him, not perfectly, not hearing him perfectly, but growing in that ability to discern and to hear what he may be saying, learning how to trust him and allow our life to be dependent on. A wonderful story. In, in John chapter 12, there is, Jesus was at his friend's house, his friend Lazarus' house. Lazarus had two sisters. One was Martha and the other was Mary. And Mary had a little rough background, but she comes out while Jesus was there at Lazarus' house, Mary and Martha's house, she comes out with a jar of perfume, big jar of perfume, not one of these little dinky things, a couple of ounces, this big jar, comes out with the jar of perfume that was said to be worth a year's wages. Pretty big jar. And she takes that perfume and begins to pour it over Jesus, 
anointing Jesus. And some of the other people who were there at that gathering you know, began to grumble and say, that's worth a lot of money. She could take that money or take that perfume, sell it and give the money to the poor. Jesus would have none of it because he recognized what was happening as she anointed him with that oil. As she was saying, Jesus, I am depending on you for everything. You're my source. You know, perhaps that, that perfume was what she wore in her former trade as a prostitute. It, it was her identity. You know, she was beautiful. She was young. She wore this perfume. Now, my identity, Jesus, I want to rely on you, that you're my God. My relationship with you gives me my identity. Perhaps the, the, the perfume, having that much perfume was her retirement. You know, she just, she would keep the perfume and so someday when she got old, she could sell it and live off, live off the proceeds. But she was saying, no, my, my security, not just my identity, my security in the future. I'm relying on you. I'm dependent on you. That you are able to be depended on. Maybe it was her dowry to someday have a, get married and that was gonna be her dowry because she, she probably didn't have a father. Lazarus, Lazarus and Martha and Mary probably, their father wasn't alive. So that was her, her confidence that she could get married. So what she was saying in that simple act was Jesus, having come to be, to know you and have a relationship with you, I now just depend on you. I rest on you. So you have intimacy that results in dependency. And then finally, it results in obedience. Because I've walked with you and I've depended on you, Lord, it's just so natural that I would want to obey you by your power, by your grace, but it's the natural outcome. But I want us to understand intimacy and dependency and obedience. The order is really important because one flows out of the prior one. Out of intimacy, we learn to depend on him. Out of dependence, we learn to be willing to say, Lord, you know that's what's for me. So I, I, as, with your grace, I walk, I walk in your ways. And when I trip up and I fall down, I'll get back up because I know you're there with your hand reached out to me. But all too often we reverse the order. And some of us here today may recognize that reality, that we've turned it around. We think that if I'm obedient, that will result in a relationship. If I'm obedient, then I can, can be dependent on God because he'll say, oh, you're, you're one of my good kids, come close. But we got it backwards. It's not our obedience that makes us worthy of his relationship and love and, and affection. It's our relationship that results in our obedience. Does that make sense? Obedience dependence, I mean, uh, intimacy, dependence, and obedience. That order is real important. That's what we're called to. That's what God wants to, to bring us to experience. So how are we doing? How is the church doing if this is, this is what God wants for us, this relationship of intimacy and dependency and obedience 
following him, being his disciples. What I would say is that we're equipped pretty well as a church knowing what salvation is about. You know, if we could, it's sort of like we know half the gospel. And I'll, I'll unpack that in a second. But we, we understand salvation. When I was 19 years old, you know, about 15, 20 years ago, I, I, I encountered Christ because he grabbed hold of me. And I understood, I didn't know much about how, why, or for what, but I understood my life was turned upside down in a, in a moment when I said, Jesus, I, I, I want to follow you. I don't want to be yours. I didn't know what all that entailed. But I, I understood salvation. I understood what, that he had grabbed hold of me. And I think as a church, we understand salvation fairly well. In other words, if someone came to your door this afternoon when you get home and said, you know, I, I understand you go to that vineyard church up there, you know, with the rocking chairs and stuff. And I, I, I would like to know about Jesus. I imagine most every one of us would be fairly adept at being able to, in some way, shape, or form, letting them know how they can get saved, how they can follow Jesus. We might pray a simple prayer of, of surrender. We may take them through uh, verses out of Romans and take them down the Romans road. We may use the bridge dot. One way or another, I, I think we could communicate how to get saved. The problem is, I think that we are not as well equipped. We're, we don't understand. We've, we have confusion over how to get someone sanctified. It's as if we've, we've divided the gospel. The gospel is coming to know him and walking with him. Relationship and discipleship. But I think the church knows how to come into relationship, knows how to get saved, and how to come alongside someone else for that purpose. But we don't quite know what to do to get them to, to be disciples. So if this person comes to your house this afternoon and says, what can I do to be saved? We probably would be fairly good in presenting, him, presenting that person the way in which they can give their life to Christ. And if they say, but wait a second, you need to know that I have a real problem with anger and I, I steal things. It's not as if we would say, oh, you need the gospel of, for, for uh, those who steal and, and those who have anger problems because there's one gospel, it's not complicated. But then if that same person came back a month later and said, you know, I, I know that I'm saved. I know that I've come into a relationship with Jesus, but I'm still having a terrible time with, with, uh, with stealing and with my anger. That's when I think we punt because as a church, we're not as well equipped with the gospel of, of sanctification. We're not as equipped and able to explain to the person clearly how to grow in Christ, how to make yourself available so he can begin to un unweave or uh, extract the brokenness out of us over our lifetime. And that's why I say we're equipped with half the gospel. The gospel wasn't meant to be divided in half, salvation and discipleship. But somehow I think the church has done that. So the gospel of wholeness, the gospel of wholeness is just that simple way to explain, to understand and explain to others in very practical, applicable terms how we can get changed. 
But instead, when the, the angry kleptomaniac comes back, what we do is we say, oh, you need to go talk to, to Michael. You need to go talk to a counselor. You need to get some therapy. But God wants us equipped to not only help, uh, allow us to know how to help someone come into relationship and introduce him to Jesus and his kind invitation, but then to come alongside them and help them grow and, as we help ourselves grow. You know, the church is full of lots of obstetricians knowing how to, people, to get people born again, but not nearly enough pediatricians to how to grow as his children. And that's what we're called to. And, and in six or seven weeks, hopefully it'll be clear to us at least understanding this process. And then we have the rest of our lives to apply it. But we need to know how to, how to walk with him in such a way that our lives can be changed and not fall into wrong theology, wrong understanding of how we grow, how we're changed. Whether it's, you know, well, you need to start memorizing the verses. You need to read the Bible. Is that a good idea? Yeah, it's a wonderful idea to, to learn verses, to memorize verses, to read the scripture. But folks, that's not what changes us. You know, think of how many people have little verses on their refrigerator about gluttony. You know, that we open and look at every time we open the refrigerator to get another, another piece of pie. You know, knowing truth, it doesn't change us. Jesus changes us. So scripture memory is good, scripture study is good, but it's not what changes us. Jesus does. Or we tell the person, what you need is you need accountability. I happen to know of a, 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 a support group for angry kleptomaniacs. Let me get you in touch with them. And they can help keep you accountable. Is accountability good? You bet it is. Does accountability change us? No. Jesus changes us. Accountability might put us in a context where, where Jesus can, can get at us, but it's Jesus that changes us. But we come back to thinking change comes through scripture study in and of itself or accountability or service. You just need to go and start serving. Go volunteer somewhere. Is that good? Yeah, it is. But service doesn't change us. Or, or self-effort. You know, you just need to try harder. Or we think that if I can wag my finger at them and act so disappointed in their behavior, that will motivate them to change. But it doesn't. It's not bad to, to encourage or even exhort others. But that's not what brings about change. Jesus does. Jesus brings about change. So again, we're called to walk people into his presence. And all too often, as, as we think that, well, it's self-effort that's going to put me over the top, the, the harder and more discouraged we get. It's, it's what I call the, the devil's triangle. You know, we, on the first side of the triangle, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to really go after it. I'm going to really deal with these issues in my life or the consequences of sins committed against me. I'm going to take it on. I'm going to really try. And we try for a while. And then all of a sudden we realize, I just can't do it. I continue to fall into the same patterns. And then we go into the third part of the triangle, which is we give up. 
until we hear an inspiring podcast or sermon or read a book and we say, okay, I'm going to try it. This time I'm going to do it. And we, we, we continually go through this, this, this pattern, just getting hopeful and then frustrated, hopeful and then frustrated. We need to come and recognize how do we grow in Christ? How do we change? And it starts with him. It starts with him. We're pursuing him. Out in the front of the building, right next to the front door, we have a dedication stone. It says, pursuing a pure and simple devotion to Christ. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, where Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, I'm afraid that you're going to be led astray from what is the pure and simple devotion to Christ. And that's his concern today for the church. Are we going to be led astray? Are we going to, is the church going to become something other than the gathering of God's children walking after him? What, what will distract us from that pure and simple devotion to Christ? So we essentially, that's why Paul says we are, we're confident to counsel. We're confident to come alongside people. We just need to have that theology or that understanding of how do we cooperate with what Jesus is doing. That's just biblical Christianity. And, and all, all the gospel of holiness is, is biblical Christianity. It's all it is. Learning how to have eternity with Christ and conformity to Christ. And over the next six, seven weeks, eight weeks, the verses on these cards, you're going to learn the verses, you're going to learn the principle, you're going to learn how to apply them. There's nothing magical or special about these verses. I could have chosen another eight verses, but I wanted something that would be simple and allow us to understand the principles of walking with Christ. We could put a lot more meat on it, but this this, makes it understandable. So we want to return to the gospel, intimacy, dependency, obedience. We want to be able to understand how we change. And just finishing up, we, we want this, this good news. The gospel wholeness is just the good news of, of our, uh, this process of God sanctifying us, God changing us. And I want it to be theologically sound, rooted in the scriptures, biblically grounded, not just pop psychology with, with verses applied, but this spring up from, from the scriptures. It needs to be reproducible. If we can't explain it to someone, then we're not going to understand ourselves. How we walk with God, how he works in us, and it needs to be effective. And, and my promise is what you're going to hear over these next number of weeks is all that. It's biblical, it's practical, it's effective, and it's something that we can walk out. So here's what I'd like us to do. We're going to go ahead and worship for a a little bit, and then we'll have a ministry time. And I believe there are going to be a number of things that God is going going to want to do in us today and through us today. And we'll make ourselves available to him to that end. But let's first just come and let him 
soften and, and whisper in her ear and begin to, to sort of plow up the ground so that we can be a people who say, oh, here I am, Lord, such as I am. Won't you take hold of my life? Let's worship. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.